Thanks for tuning in to the CHCA Entrepreneurial Podcast, a podcast from Cincinnati Hills Christian Academy, where, through the Entrepreneurship and Sustainability Program, we are building into the entrepreneurs of the future. I'm your host, Stephen Carter. When it comes to the topic of leadership, there are many different types of leaders out there and many different roles, from the leaders in business, to the leaders in education, to the leaders in the political sense, to leaders in the home, to leaders in the workplace. Today's guest will talk about how his leadership training came from what might seem at first an unlikely source, as he discusses his time in the Marine Corps and how that helped him understand traits such as building relationships, work ethic, taking risks, and discipline. Jim McCarthy will explain how he journeyed from a Marine to a business owner to a leader. Joining me today is Jim McCarthy. Jim is the co-founder, the former president of Intelligrated. Jim, thanks so much for joining me. I am glad to be here, Stephen. Thank you very much for inviting me. So Jim, could you begin by telling us just a little bit of your background, a little bit of the work that you've done? Sure. Uh, well, I am a gentleman that is 71 years old, so I've been around a while. Uh, and I really initially started my career in the world when I was 18 years old. I graduated from high school. And prior to that, my birthday was May 27th, 1968. And all I really wanted to do at that time was to go into the Marine Corps, which I did. So I enlisted on my birthday. I graduated in high school on, I think it was the 10th of June. And on the 17th of June, I was in the Marine Corps. And by December, I had joined my unit on the DMZ in Vietnam. So I came into the Vietnam War in 1967. It was, 1960, it was 1967 when I graduated from high school. December of 1967, I was I found myself right in the middle of the Vietnam War at one of its most precious uh, uh, severe points. It was right at the North and South Vietnam border. Um, and that really started my business career, believe it or not, because it changed how I thought about things and changed how I thought about people. It taught me an awful lot about relationships, about work ethic, about taking risks. Uh, it really kind of started uh, in all honesty right there in the Marine Corps in those days gave me a lot of uh, discipline and a lot of framework that I did not necessarily have when I was a high school student and just really wanted to get out of high school. So it, it, it kind of launched there. Time I, I came home from the service and I went to college. Uh, I went to college on the GI Bill um, and, I, and I went to a technical school. Uh, I have a two-year college education, not a four-year college education. I, I, it was in designing uh, tools and dyes up at, uh, I went to Fair State University in Michigan. I was actually quite fortunate to get into that school at that time because I didn't have the greatest grades in high school. Uh, not because I wasn't smart enough, but because I had other interests. Uh, uh, but because of my military service, the, and it was a state university, they had to take me uh, and give me one semester, which I took and wound up on the dean's list. And I did pr pretty much every semester from then on. So um, bottom line, I, I, I learned a lot very early on from the age of about 18 to 21, 22, 
I kind of grew up an awful lot. I then joined a company in Grand Rapids, uh, Michigan, uh, which was an material handling company, a company that I loved and I absolutely love to this day, although they became a big competitor of mine in years later. I spent 15 years there at one point. I was the, even though, or I make the point that I did not have the four year college degree, I wound up managing um, many people who had degrees, uh, many, many higher levels higher than that. I was the engineering manager at uh, Rapstan, which was a good size world leader at that time, even on material handling systems. These are conveyor systems and automated machinery that move things through buildings. So you've all seen the ads on TV about uh, Amazon. You see these packages and boxes flowing all over the place. Well, that's what they did. They were really the leaders in, at that day, but that's even what I wound up spending the rest of my career in. So we'll talk more about that in a bit, but that took us to a period of about the, the late 80s. In the late 80s, the management team from Rapistan, um, the top management team, I was not at the top of that management team at that point, but I was leading their engineering groups and I had uh, a, a lot of broad experience uh, throughout the entire company and was known as a, as a mover and a shaker and a fast riser and a guy that got things done. Um, they asked me to join them and join a company in St. Louis. That company was called LV. That became a platform company. We say platform company because it was the first company of what was their the plan was to be several companies that were acquired and brought in around it to kind of capture a whole segment of the market in material handling. Uh, and that, that whole deal went on for about 11 years. I was a management owner there as well. And it went from a $40 million company to about a $500 million company. Then we sold that company in 2000. And I thought I was really going to retire at that uh, point. I had done an awful lot of things. I had uh, managed engineers. I'd managed the you know field construction forces, and I'd you know managed the R and D forces, and and really done everything that I really you know gave me satisfaction for you know through so many different legs of the, of uh, my business experience. But after we sold the company in 2000 sitting um, kind of thinking, and I was a young guy still with 50-ish, and was deciding, what do I do at this point? Do I retire? Because I could have, we had the resources, or do I do something else? So long and short of it is myself and one of my business partners from the previous company said, well, let's just kind of do it again. You know, we've uh, got the knowledge and we've got the relationships. We know the industry, the market, we understand the technology. And some of the people that had been investors in our previous company were anxious to invest in behind us because they uh, uh, they knew we could they knew we could do it. They knew all these other things that are important to starting up a business. And uh, so, with with a big capital commitment from a West Coast based private equity company, we put together a business plan and started and integrated from a blank piece of paper. So it was a it was a business plan. Startup, which we worked on in the summer of uh, 2000, and uh, I'm sorry, in the summer of 2001, and uh, start business at Intelligrated at uh, nine weeks before 9 11, when 9 4 uh, 2001. And then just to, and, and he was the, the uh, chief executive officer, I was the chief operating officer and president. Uh, we worked together as a team. His name was Chris Cole. He's a long, uh, long time Cincinnati resident. 
Um, and between he and myself and a group of very talented people grew integrated to a very large company. So when we sold the company to Honeywell in 2000, I'm sorry, in, uh, in 2016, so it was 15 years later, almost within a month of 15 years, the company had grown to 3,500 employees. It had offices all over the world in South America and China, Canada, uh, nothing yet, yet at that time in Europe. Um, had um, it was just under a billion dollars in revenue, and uh, Honeywell, you know, paid the shareholders uh, 1.5 billion dollars for the company. So it's a this was a resounding success by any measure. Um, and what we'll probably be talking about today and maybe other times is well, why is that so? You know, why 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 did that work out that way? It wasn't just because of Chris and Jim. It had a lot to do with Chris and Jim. But it was really because of talent and leadership throughout the through, that we were able to attract and bring in because of our talent and leadership, I think, in many ways. But um, so, Stephen, there's a lot of detail that flows through all of that. That's a 44 year history, basically, of my business uh, engagement um, in, in kind of at the high level of what we've done. But I think that kind of gets us to where we are. So, to me, fundamentally, my whole career has been based on what I learned in the Marines, the opportunities that people gave me and the things that I did with the opportunities that they did give me. Uh, and it really all came down to knowing what I was doing, um, working with people, liking to work with people and getting smarter and smarter every day about the business I was in. Jim, um, th this is just an amazing story. I mean, it really is looking at this journey of yours a journey that is obviously just filled with success, you know, even at the point where back in 2000, that, that on some level was it for you. You had achieved that success. You had achieved your goals and you were thinking at that point that that was it, but you decided to continue that journey for the next step, which leads to creating a company that sells in 2016 for $1.5 billion. I mean, this, this is an amazing story, Jim. And, and I know You've already mentioned this, but I know myself and the listeners will look at this and say, how do you get from point A to point Z? I mean, here you are in 2016 at the peak of all this, selling this company. And I think it's easy for some people to say, well, this, you know, it's, you know, he's, he's just a successful guy, but it's clear that there are stages along your journey. You mentioned the Marine Corps, you mentioned building relationships, work ethic, taking risks, discipline. These seem to be the stages that took you along that journey. So could you just go a little bit more in depth about those learning experiences? You mentioned the Marine Corps and you mentioned relationships. How did those two things tie together with you understanding the importance of forming and maintaining relationships? Well, the Marine Corps made me was, it started out as like with most high school kids of fascination, you play cops and robbers and the, Back in those days, it wasn't too long. It was within 20 years of the end of World War II, and all the kids were playing Army and all that. So my entire life, I had this, this um, vision that that was something that I wanted to do. So throughout my growing up years and even through high school, uh, it, it was, and there was a war on. It was a, there was a draft on. Uh, and so I, I began my Marine Corps experience with the fact my father was a Marine, and I wanted to kind of, and I've listened to his stories over the years. And I just kind of wanted to be in that culture and in that environment. Uh, but once I got in it, uh, I, the reasons I was going into it was not 
necessarily what I found out once I got it. Once I got it, it was tough and it was hard. And it was, you know, in Vietnam, it was very depriving. You know, we were in very rugged conditions and we didn't eat very regular and you didn't even have water very regular. You know, I, I, I would tell you I went uh, months without taking a shower or being under a roof. Um, and so it, it built a level of endurance and, and, and where you also, from the relationship side, linking all that together, you were trained in the Marine Corps uh, with very um, specific methods, traits of leadership that they look for, as well as the principles that kind of guide you in that path. And, you know, you're really taught a lot of things as part of the Marine Corps training and a part of the culture and about it, if you want respect from your peers and your seniors, it's really how do you deal with things that require, you know, judgmental thinking and, um, in other words, good judgment, good decisions, that you are equitable with people, that you've got integrity built into your your uh, scoring system where, you know, it's about truthfulness and honesty. Um, you got to learn to be decisive and yet still be able to deal with everybody, deal with, you know, the, the, the guy that came from the, the hills of, of Tennessee, who maybe is not well-educated uh, or as worldly as you are, uh, to somebody who is way over your scale, who, who comes from, you know, an elite prep school, perhaps at, at, at an 18-year-old age. You have to learn to deal with people that are not like you and to get things done through people. And you can't just get things done because you've got a, a, a senior rank in your life, in many cases, is in somebody else's hands in that world. And their life is in your hands. So trust is a really big deal and people need to know that you are who you are. You say, you do what you say, that you can be dependent, dependent upon to, uh, to uh, do what you're supposed to do when you're supposed to do it. Uh, and that you, that you actually care, that you care about them. You know, you care that the, the guy that you're, that you're, you're um, in the field with, that he's not feeling good or that he just lost his girlfriend or that uh, his, you know, he's got some personal problems or his feet are bad and he can't walk. You, you learn how to care for people, know that they're going to care about you. You learn how to take, you know, the, the risks that come with being in a war zone, but count being able to count on the people around you to take care of you. So relationships were very, very threaded through. And that wasn't what I thought about when I first thought about going in to the Marine Corps to me, that it was in kind of a, Saturday afternoon matinee action adventure, but it was all of that, but it was all those other things that I learned. I was totally changed by the time that I came home. And I, by the way, I, I stayed in the Marine Corps um, reserve program after I came home and, and, and after I actually I went to college as well for 22 years. So I was in, a, I, was in I, I identified with the culture and with the people and, uh, and it made me a better person through all those years. And I, I only stopped being in there because of a health problem. Otherwise I would probably stayed. I was, I, I was 22 years in the Marines. I did not retire. Should be clear about that from the Marines because in the reserve program, you have to attend so many drills a year. And uh, because I was traveling so much as a business person, I missed a few years. So I would have only 17 years that counted towards um, retirement, but 22 total years in, associated with the Marine Corps. Some of them not totally good years. But anyway, that is how I would link my relationship uh, with the 
you know, I mean, I'm sorry, link my experiences in the Marine Corps to relationships. And then it continued from then on, because even as a young person in business, you know, what I found that I had that others didn't seem to have was confidence. I had, I had true confidence that I could, um, that I was doing what, uh, that I was doing my best and, and that, uh, that I was making a difference. And I always had that after coming home from, from there, I kind of had a bit of a cocky attitude in the sense that I was, I would call it a confident attitude. And that is catching. People see that, people gravitate to it. You know, people that you're working around, um, you know, want to be led and they want somebody to be taking initiative. People who are above you in terms of managers and executives, they see it too. And they start identifying you as somebody who is not in the mold of just getting by and doing what needs to do. I wouldn't even say the minimum, just doing your job. As I told my children, uh, you know, always just do 10% more than the other guy and you will stand out like no tomorrow because uh, everybody, not everybody, but the, the, the vast majority of people tend to kind of fit into a groove and they're happy to work their eight to five job and, and, and uh, do their con- contribute to their parts. And I think though well, that's important, uh, but that extra piece is what propelled me. I always did the 10% more that people were never expecting me to do, and it always paid off. I think that is phenomenal advice for our listening audience because that's not out of the reach of anybody. You know, I mean, saying saying do 200% more, that's out of the reach, but you're saying 10% gives that advantage, gives you that competitive edge. And what I love about your story is your description of confidence which sometimes can be portrayed as, as cocky, as a cocky attitude, but, but yet you saw it as something that said, I'm doing my best, I'm making a difference. Now, this, this leads to my question then for you to kind of really jumpstart this conversation about leadership and how that works. And if we think back even a couple decades to when you know John Maxwell is on the scene and he's writing his leadership book, and it, it turns into this almost entire network of books that if you, if you go now and look for a book on leadership, you're going to find dozens of different authors and techniques and tips and in all kinds of different ways about which someone should go about leadership. And so my question for you, Jim, based on your experience, does an individual set out to become a leader or does leadership seek the individual out? What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think there's been a lot of studies on that. Are leaders created or born? And I think just going from from my personal experience, um, I, I found that I've always had a, what I would say is a subtle ability to lead, even going way back into my school days, my high school and grade school days, simply by just trying to be a, a friend to a lot of people, to everybody, to to. Um, generally like people and you, you kind of to be a good leader you kind of got to like people and um and bridge the gaps between lots of different people's groups so i think to some degree i've always had that capability it was it was so now i, I move over to the other side i think it can be trained and i think it can be taught because i saw the profound difference that now part of it's your psychic i'm, I'm sure the way you're made but the Marine Corps um, is where I got my fundamental basic leadership training and it trained on both the traits and the principles. And for anybody that's interested in that, it'd be worthwhile to go to uh, the Marine Corps 
site, U.S. Marine Corps site, and just put in leadership traits and leadership principles, and you'll see what they gauge as as how you train leaders, and you must possess these certain traits, and you must follow these certain principles. And um, that is where it took form for me, where it got, um, it, it, it was some, some uh, s- specific teachings, I would say, that kind of guided you in the right path. And I would say I paid more of attention to it than a lot of people did. So, uh, but from my standpoint, um, I, I think that there, it's, it's, the jury is out, but it is equally important to have a makeup that you're receptive to becoming a leader. Uh, but because you have to have that. And to me, that really means you just like people and you care about people. If, if you have that in your genes, then people will know that and people will recognize that, um, um, you know, that that is a, uh, that, that, that you're different. You're, and, and, you know, so that would be my best answer to it. It's, it's, I don't know for sure, but I think it's a blend of both. You've got certain genes that are going to gravitate you in that direction but you are receptive to the, to the work that's been done in that whole world of leadership and you will get more out of it than the other guy who is not receptive to it. And this has been an ongoing theme so far in your conversation about your relationships with other people, how as a leader, you really do have to like people and that reciprocates. You, you have to be a person that people like. But I also know that leadership brings its challenges. And one of those challenges is placing time constraints on the leader such that the leader may not be able to maintain those relationships. The leader might not be able to give all the people that he wants to the time that he wants to give them. So how, in your experience, have you seen leaders, yourself and others, best manage their time when it comes to maintaining those essential relationships? Um, I think that's really an awfully good point. And I would say that uh, it's really quite interesting because in my case, I always made the time. So, and you can say in many respects that that was a poor use of my time as an executive of a a billion dollar um, company and with, uh, you know, 3,000 employees. But anybody that ever sought my advice or needed to talk with me, I always took the time, always. And I think if you asked around (laughs) Cincinnati, you would find that to be the case. And whether or not it was a a person working in manufacturing on the plant floor or one of the senior executives in the company, if anybody just say, hey, do you have a minute? I always had a minute. And I would walk through the factories and I would take the time to talk to the guy who was assembling something or when, you know, some new engineer that I was interested in had joined the company uh, and I wanted to kind of give them the, the, the charge to, you know, make good things happen and to use initiative. I always took the time. It was very, and, and so therefore I was the guy that was usually leaving work at seven or eight o'clock at night because I always took to put the people first and took the time to hear them out and then maybe had to shorten the conversation that they would have liked, but not postpone the conversation. I, 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 I always took the time. So balancing that is kind of tough, uh, but it's paying attention to the detail. Uh, my son tells a story of, uh, he worked at Intelligrated as well, of coming into my office at the end of the day, you know, at five or six o'clock at night. And then he would, I would, he and I would quite often talk and kind of talk, <clears throat> talk about the day and whatnot. And 
I'd always had stacks of birthday cards sitting on my credenza. And, uh, and I would be talking to him and we'd be kind of going through the day. But with 3,500 people in the company, everybody got a personally signed birthday card from me. And he said he could never really understand that. You know, we'd be sitting there talking and we might talk for an hour or so after work. And I'm, while we're talking, I'm constantly signing birthday cards. And, and so it was my way of just sending a birthday card. And I did this for every year that I've been in business going all the way back to the previous company. Everybody in the company from the time I was a president in the previous company as well, which was uh, the Bushman company, everybody got a birthday card for me. And it was my way of just staying in touch with everybody and taking the time. So I always took the time. A lot. The worst thing that you can do in many cases is not give people the time. And, and, and it gets harder. And if, I tell you, if I had 3,500 people coming to my office every day, that would not be sustainable, obviously. But you know what, what I find out is that, that you can find the time. Your day might get longer, but you can find the time. I think that's phenomenal. That, that anecdote about signing a birthday card for your employees, and we're, we're talking about 3,500 employees. We're not talking about the 50 you know, that, that work in your office or the 100 that work in your building. So that's obviously something that you had to decide early on in your career. You can't just decide that all of a sudden I'm going to send these birthday cards. You said you started that. And then as the company grew, that grew as well. Um, any, any other pieces similar to that that you decided early on, I'm just going to do this. And it became a habit for you that in some way assisted in your leadership. Anything like that, not necessarily. We always considered from our standpoint, though, as the people that were running the company, that the people were entitled to know as much as possible. So we, we felt that keeping the people informed was a real key part of our job. And while we kept the board very much informed, the board of directors, uh, we would do a board meeting every quarter. Uh, and we did that for our entire existence. Uh, but then immediately following that board meeting, and in most cases, and probably a few times that we didn't because of other reasons, but we would then fundamentally have a all employee meeting. And we did that where Chris and myself, we had, you know, four major installations in the United States and four, four factories uh, that we went to. And plus all of the offices that we had around the country, we did that every quarter. So I think the thing that we decided early on is that we're, we're kind of all in it together and everybody needs, uh, you know, we need to build a culture of, of inclusion and that people need to know what's going on in the company. Uh, it's our way of staying close to the people because we entertain questions from the entire workforce. And some of these were on video and some of them were in person. Um, but, uh, and, and, and what we told the people, there's no question that you could possibly ask that we wouldn't answer. Even if that answer was, we got to get back to you, but there was, it was no intention to, you know, uh, hide the cards, so to speak. So, um, and I think the other thing that we decided early on is that, you know, the, the, the benefits of the company can't just flow to the executives of the company. You know, when I'm now I'm talking about, you know, the financial side. So we spread the ownership in the company very, very, very wide. Matter of fact, the private equity company that was our, financial partner in the business did not agree with that. They wanted, they, they thought we'd be smart, much smarter to concentrate the equity or the shares and another term that would be used or 
um, that we would be much better to keep that to a very small group of people who could really make a difference. And we felt that everybody made a difference. So we, we spread the, the wealth generation of the company out to a very broad group of people. And then we paid everybody in the company a bonus, whether you worked on the plant floor or whether you were a, you know, a, a clerical person or whatever, you got a bonus every single year. And I don't think uh, that there, there might've been one year just because of the financial crisis or something that we didn't pay it. So it was including every, people in all the best information that we have in the company, letting them ask questions uh, and, and answer and without hiding from the questions, even, you know, some, some work tough questions, um, answering the questions openly and fully or getting back to them uh, and, and to everybody else. If we couldn't answer it, we would respond with a written, but it would be uh, posted or emailed. I can't remember exactly how we did it. Uh, and then making sure that everybody in the company had a right to share in the financial benefit of the company and not just a few people at the top. Now, this go, this goes back to that aspect you were talking about, about transparency and integrity and honesty. And also this desire to bring people in and encourage them and encourage their growth. And to really touch upon an aspect of your story early on, you mentioned that you yourself did not get a four-year college degree, and yet you, early in your career, were overseeing individuals with education levels at that four-year or higher. Now, you have obviously really, really worked on your own learning, your own education outside of that two-year degree, so clearly personal growth is important to you. But my question is about leadership with regard to continued education for the individual. So here's someone who says, I'm going to go into leadership, I'm driven to be a leader, I'm going to you know, either go to college, I'm going to pursue education on this level. But to me, it sounds like there is a level of commitment to one's personal growth beyond traditional education. And I'm curious, what has your own personal growth been like for your own learning apart from the education you received early in life? Where, where did you go to learn, to receive your own independent personal growth? Well, that's a really good question. So if you, if you came to my house, the first thing you'd see is that I've got a lot of bookshelves, but an awful lot of books in, in my basement study, in my upstairs study, and to the point where my wife, I know, secretly sneaks them out and gets them to the library. Um, so, and so someone would say, well, have you read all those books? And I'd say, well, I read some part of every one of those books, you know, that I didn't necessarily read every one of them, you know, cover to cover, but they span a wide range of personal interests, which is everything from just history and politics and sciences, physics, algebra. I've always wanted to become uh, much more learned in the sciences and time has always been a bit of a problem because I've been pretty busy in my lifetime, but I spend a lot of time on, on those things now. Um, back in 1997, the uh, company, the, the previous company that we were working for knew that they were going to be making me a president of one of the divisions, uh, which was the Bushman division. Uh, but they, and they also knew that I, you know, did not have that same, um, uh, resume of, you know, my, my partner is a Harvard graduate. He went to Harvard. Uh, he has a Harvard MBA um, and very well uh, educated in that regard. Um, so anyway, they chose to send me to Harvard. So I, I went to uh, Harvard back in 1997. I went to their um, executive program. So I spent 13 weeks, I think it was, at 
Harvard, a very intense and very um, um, robust um, period and very expensive for the company. I think I could have gotten a Harvard MBA if I paid the normal rates uh, for it. But anyways, it was a very, very enlightening course. And that was really um, to further my growth and recognize that I didn't have everything that I needed. That was heavily driven towards strategy and finance and uh, those uh, aspects. So, so, you know, it hasn't all been, you know, self-learning in that sense. I had, a, that was a pretty good, uh, a pretty good uh, driver that brought in a lot of the stuff that I didn't have. I didn't have a deep understand, you know, accounting, yes, but not in finance. And so that really added an awful lot to it. So to me, it's been, um, I, you know, I, by the way, I it just, that, that other 20 years, 22 total, but years in the, in the Marine Corps, um, there was training all the time. And it was training on, on not, not just on the, the arts of war, but on, um, on what we're talking about here, on leadership, on development of people, on development of yourself. And, and so I'd say that it was a, a strong combination of my own uh, reading and my own, um, uh, and my, my stay at Harvard. Harvard added a big dimension uh, that I didn't have before that closed a big gap, which was on the financial side. Now, a lot of your work has been very technical work with the automated material handling industry, which is really where you've specialized in your career. And um, I'm, I'm sure, are, are you familiar with, with the book, The Goal by uh, Goldratt? Yep, very much so. I used to use that to uh, teach our yeah, go ahead. Well, perfect. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. So so that, that's a book that we talk a little bit here in our program at CHCA using the concept of the bottleneck and his wonderful story in there about the Boy Scout troop that's on the hike. And they discover that the, the, the Boy Scouts in the front are going way too fast. The ones in the back are going too slow. And they discover it's because they have a bottleneck. They've got the one walker who the troop can only move as fast as that one person. But then they decide they can lighten his load. They can put that person in the front. And the whole novel becomes this discourse on finding your bottlenecks, which in an industry like yours is a very literal bottleneck on the manufacturing line. But for a leader, it also becomes a metaphor for finding those areas in the organization, be it an individual or some aspect of manufacturing, that creates a stop, that, that's, that, that the flow essentially comes to a halt until that bottleneck can produce what it needs to produce. So in your experience, both in the very specific manufacturing, but also in your experience as a leader, to what extent has identifying and working through bottlenecks played a role for you? Uh, it is really the uh, secret sauce to growing a business. And uh, so let me make this suggestion for the, for the audience that will be listening to this. They really should take some time and go to uh, the uh, Honeywell Integrated website, which will give them a good understanding of the business that I was in. And let me describe that business just a little bit, then you can, you might get a chance to get some sense of the bottleneck potentials that we had and, and that had to be, that had to be fixed uh, always along the way. So when we started the company, it was, it was a rigid initial group of about 17 people. A few weeks later, it was another group of 17 people, but we had this vision and the vision was to grow a, and we were competing against two multinational, huge giant companies. One of them was a $3.2 billion British company uh, that uh, was the acquirer of my previous company. 
uh, and the other one was Siemens. And, and Siemens is a big name that people should know of, a multi, multi, uh, hundred billion, hundreds of billion dollar company. We, we picked those as our competitors. We didn't pick small people. But so it, it, with the idea being that we were going to be a big company. So we never started out our journey with the idea that we were going to be, you know, a 50 or $100 million gig. We started out with the idea that we were going to be a billion dollar kind of company. Now, it took a little bit longer than I thought it was going to take, but uh, you, know, you got a financial crisis and a couple of things in between. To do that, we sat down when we originally charted out the business plan, you know, what were the bottlenecks going to be? Because uh, when you scale, we knew the scale could come big because some of the contracts that we got were, you know, in the early days, it'd be $5 million and, and well, it'd be a million dollars in the very early days. Then it'd be $5 million, it'd be $10 million and 20. And then about the time I left the company, it was a, a single contract could be over a hundred million dollars. So we knew the company could scale very, very quickly. And, and when you get a sense, well, what are these systems like? Well, some of these systems are in a building that's 1 million square feet and there would be 20 miles of conveyor under that roof. Think of that, 20 miles of conveyor networking, spaghettiing through a, through a facility. And here's the kicker. You're not just doing one of those jobs. You're doing a bunch of those jobs and you're doing them with on contracts with very certain dates that, were, uh, that you have signed up to contractually that these things will be done. And the only way that you could do that is to have a very finely detailed uh, and orchestrated plan that, that managed at the detail through processes and procedures, uh, the engineering of those jobs, the manufacturing of them, and then the installation and the final checkout of them. So if you can envision, you know, doing 30 projects at one time, each of them overlaid on top of each other, if you know what a Gantt chart is, if you think about it that way, and you have to thread through that, all of the engineering for you, that has to be done on each one of these to array all of the products and equipment uh, under, you know, that's going to be required under that contract. Uh, and you got to do that over and over many times, you know, all running on the same schedule. That is a big deal. And the whole world uh, of success here is built on a couple of three big things. One, our products were a, we always kind of referred to them as a Lego set. You know, we, we have made thousands and thousands of different individual products that could be assembled together in different ways that would create a unique solution. So, um, you know, the, the, it really, the whole business premise was a standard business model so that all projects are done the same way. They look the same way. They're managed the same way. Um, using standard equipment that is all built in big factories. We had a million square feet of manufacturing. Um, so you're building the component. The person who's building the component on the factory floor doesn't even know what it's for. It's only when it gets out to the, we call it the field, but out to the job site, and it's assembled in a unique way uh, to, into a system that it really has a function. It doesn't have a function really when it leaves the factory. All of that, everything was built on a very deep network of processes and procedures and standard products. So, you know, the way we dealt with, with bottlenecks was right up front in the business plan, the way we designed. And, and by the way, we had been through this before uh, in our previous company, uh, the Bushman company, went and trying to scale a company very quickly 
there, uh, we went from 40 million at that particular location to about 220, about 230 million in not too many years. Uh, and we went through a lot of stress. And the stress there, more than anything else, was with the, um, the uh, ERP system, the enterprise system that was running the company, uh, software system. It was old and it was ancient and we upgraded it and it was really a problem when you're trying to run a business and then you upgrade a major software product like that. So when we started this company, one of the key focuses of what was the ERP system that we were going to install that was going to run the company. And that was, we, we selected Oracle. In those days, it was an Oracle system called 11i. It was all built around the idea of disparate locations and, um, you know, internet kind of businesses. And, and then we had to design all of our equipment and have all of our products and equipment and processes kind of put into that system. So it was painful two or three years on the front end, but it was really spending most of our time standardizing. So the bottlenecks to me go away with a with highly standardized processes, procedures, and equipment. And that's how we built the company. And we knew that day one when we started the company that that was our that was going to be our challenge. And I think we met that challenge. And and it's it it's just really kind of amazing that you can take a contract that you, you know, you put together a proposal and that you outline, that you, uh, you know, lay out a system and you price all of that, you cost all of it and you give it to the customer and you say that, you know, if we were doing that today, that this system, and it's going to cost you about $80 million is going to be up and running and convey and, and in production and conveying cases, you know, by next, uh, you know, November 15th. And on next November 15th, that system is up and running. And if you think of the thousands and thousands of tasks that have to be done, done at the right time and in the right sequence, uh, and all of the, the suppliers that all have to be marshaled together to get all of that stuff to a precise point in time, it's really quite phenomenal. And we did that very well, which is what, why we grew so fast. We were a company that could be counted on to provide the, techno the right technology, and, and, and to provide it at, at the uh, at the right time, in other words, that, that we schedules that might might have missed a couple, but um, but not you know in the main we were very very uh, astute about uh, what we promised and what we delivered, and it, it was what allowed the company to grow. Really, in many ways, it, it sounds very similar to the plot of of the novel of the book. I was called a novel. It is a novel of the novel, the goal. And it really, what that shows is that leadership is key to all of that, having that vision and that, that goal, the goal, you know, we're going to deliver this by, like you said, the next November, what are the tasks that have to be done? How can we streamline those tasks? And it sounds like leadership is really going to be the key piece in identifying those bottlenecks, but also in bringing about that ultimate goal of finishing on time and satisfying the customer in order to bring about the bigger goal making money, growing the business, and going after those competitors that are a lot bigger than you are, but that will become equal competitors as your company grows. So if we if we distill this a little bit, this, this concept of leadership, we've been talking about this this whole time. We've talked about how it comes down to relationships. It comes down to your own personal growth, to creating a culture of inclusion, to foreseeing the bottlenecks, but also creating a framework to avoid them. What would you say to someone starting out in this path. They, they've been handed a position of leadership. It might not be over 3,500 people, 
but it might be over five. Maybe they're leading a team and they have a goal and they want to create a process to meet that goal. They want to include their team. They want to be transparent. What would you say are some of those initial steps or some of those key things? They might be character traits or values. They could be actions. What does the young leader who's starting out need to prioritize in order to successfully lead others? Well, um, that's a good question. And I think, first off, I think that a good leader who is just starting out needs to think about first what kind of leader does he or she want to be. And then they need to set the example very right from the outset of the behavior that they expect in others by what they do themselves. So setting the right example is extremely important. And that means that you can't say one thing and do another. So setting the example is very, very important. I think the, uh, the other is being very confident. So if, you're, if you are uh, leading somebody on a project or you have aspirations to do that, then you should be very um, confident in what it is that you're doing. You, you, you have to know as much or more than the people you're trying to lead or people aren't gonna look to you as a leader. So, so competency, I think, really matters. Um, I think the uh, idea of, of caring is huge, you know, that um, you can't be a leader if people don't think that you have their interests at heart. You know, so you, you, it, it's really not all about you. Matter of fact, as a, as a leader, you know, you're, it, it's really more about the other person. And if you ever really get to that point in your life where you're really caring more about the other person than you are about yourself in a in a fundamental relationship, uh, then uh, you're you're mostly there because you will act and do things in their best interest. It's being honest with them. I think you you, you can't uh, sugarcoat the uh, bad news, and you can't and you gotta recognize them when they're recognize the folks when they're doing something really good. Uh, you have to have justice in the way you you know hand out uh, you know rewards or the way you reprimand people uh, and you, you, you know in all of this you've got to be able to put forward a vision that people can stand in behind and say oh man that, that, that we get there that's really worth the time and the effort uh, and I, I think the other thing that has kind of helped me in many respects and I think it helps all leaders is just being authentic you know not being somebody not being somebody different than who you are which all threads into integrity and everything else but just being an authentic leader, telling people the story the way that really is. And you have to have passion for what it is that you're, you're attempting to lead people about. People need to know that you really care about that. That means you putting your shoulder behind the project or the company or whatever it is, as much or more than anybody else. You, you gotta, you know, and you can't fake passion. You can fake a lot of things, but people know whether or not you're truly excited about something. And if you are, that does an awful lot to uh, close the, uh, and a, lot, a lot of the other things. If people know that you're really excited, um, it's catching, you know, it just spreads. Um, so I'd say those would be, I think, the key things, but the, it's, hard to, it's hard to beat, you know, competency and setting a great example of the behavior you want to see as, as being right near the top. And fantastic traits. I mean, you you laid out a lot of really wonderful things that not just leaders, really anybody should and could be doing. One of the things you mentioned was vision. 
And as, as, we, as we kind of wrap up this conversation, I would love to drill down on two questions about that when it comes to a leader and his or her role with, with vision. We hear a lot about this word in today's society. It's almost become a buzzword with leadership. You know, you've got to have the vision. You've got to share the vision. And my, my two questions for you stem from this. The first being, how does a leader create that vision? And then how does a leader communicate that vision. So the creation and the communication. What what are your thoughts on that, Jim? You know, first off, I think the leader creates the vision because it comes, in general, generally speaking, from him. It's something that he's seeing that other people are not seeing. And so how he creates that, I think, is is probably more unique to them. How you communicate it is a is a different thing. It's it's a very much part of a belief system. There's a story about Steve Jobs with the uh, when the, his folks were. He had charged his folks with the first iPhone, and they kept to him, and it had different features embedded in it. Uh, but he kept pushing for, you know, I want something that deals with the internet. I want something that's a camera. I don't want to have to carry a camera and carry a phone. I want something that's a phone itself, and I want something that you know can give me GPS locations and all of that. And as people coming back, coming back, said the people aren't asking for that. You know, why do you keep driving this this way? The people aren't asking for it. it's not something they're telling us they want. And Steve Jobs said, you know, it's our job to tell them what they want. It's our job to tell them what they want. They don't know what they want. We know what they want. And I think it's a little bit there. That's quite visionary to me is to be able to see that kind of end. You know, when you can see the end, then you can easily construct the path of how you're going to get to that end. So um, I think that those visions come about differently in different people for different ways. But how you communicate it, I think, is, is, uh, is more interesting in a way, uh, or at least more doable. And that is, uh, it's got to be simple and it's got to be clear. It's got to be something that people can identify with. And it's got to be repeated often. Yeah, I mean, very, very often. And we used to uh, articulate our vision many times in our in our employee meetings where it would be nothing more than what our mission statement was. Um, and if, if I go way back to uh, my days at Rapistan, their vision, you know, not everybody knew what the vision was, but they just had a simple saying up on the wall of one of their executive training rooms. And most people read it. Uh, I read it and it made a difference. Um, and it, it was, and I'll, I can quote to this day. And it was to, to do more things for more people in the proper sale and management of material handling systems. And in that sentence, that gave me the vision of the company. And, and I would tell you, I probably pirated that vision in the two other major companies that I went on to uh, found and be part of, uh, because it is really, it says it all. It's to be broad and do more things for more people in more industries uh, and uh, in the proper sale, in other words, don't sell bad deals. You know, you gotta, the design's got to be right. It's got to do. It's got to. It's got to work for the customer. And then, how do they manage that? You know, technology afterwards, uh, which is proper sale and management of material handling systems. It was a simple paragraph. It wasn't a paragraph. It was a sentence. But it drove me for the next thirty or forty years. And that's exactly what I built the company on. So, uh, communicating the vision, it can be done through mission statements. It can be done through, you know, mind maps, which are kind of interesting sometimes. And, uh, but it needs to be articulated and stated very, very often. And it actually, we used to use what we call smart goals. 
and SMART goals were put out by the executive team, myself and Chris, and then they were, they were cascaded down through the organization and each manager had to rewrite those SMART goals for his organization. The very top of that was what our vision was. That was a paragraph that said what the company was all about. And, and uh, so that's how we did it. It was just constant repetition. Jim, uh, in interest of time, I've got one final question for you as we sort of close this conversation. And that is, if we think back to that 18-year-old Jim McCarthy, fresh out of high school, headed to the Marine Corps, his entire career ahead of him, what is one piece of advice that you would give to your 18-year-old self knowing what you know now? Believe in yourself, which I which I came to do, believe in yourself and, um, and, you know, follow your passion, I think. Now I did that, <laughs> but um, I, there's lots of things I might've done earlier and sooner in my life, but I don't think it would have turned out any better. Well, Jim, this has been a phenomenal conversation. You've given us a lot to think about, and your your career is uh, truly an inspiration, and your journey is one that I think will really encourage many of our listeners. So, Jim, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Oh, you're absolutely welcome, and good luck to all the kids out there who are just starting out. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you. You bet. Thank you. That concludes this episode of the CHCA Entrepreneurial Podcast. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all future episodes. Now, if you're a business owner who's interested in sponsoring this podcast or the CHCA Entrepreneurship and Sustainability Program, please reach out through our school's website, chca-oh.org. If you are someone who's interested in learning more about our program, reach out as well, prospective student or family, to learn more about what CHCA and our Entrepreneurship and Sustainability Program have to offer.